Well, you're already in Colossians, I hope, so stay there. And we are going to be looking at verses 20 through 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's go ahead and pray one more time. Well, Father, we are grateful for all the precious people who have come out on this rainy day to celebrate Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thank you for that reality, Father. Thank you that you live in us through the Holy Spirit. You've made your abode in your people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing reality that Christ lives in us. And this is the hope of glory. This is the guarantee of our future destination. You've given the Holy Spirit as your down payment, guaranteeing our future. And we're grateful that you dwell in us, Lord. And we want to live like people who are indwelt with the living God. So help us to surrender more because we've been here today. Help us to see glorious things from your word. Let us be built up in our faith. For those who are lacking faith, may you minister hope to them. May you minister to those who are suffering. I think all of those subjects will be tackled in this uh, section. And we just lay everything that's gonna happen at your feet and pray that you do mighty wonders in our midst. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen, amen. Woody Allen over the years has been known for little quips, usually with a dark feel. He said these words, more than any time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, hopelessness, the other to total extinction. Let us pray that we have the wisdom to choose correctly. That's a pretty dark thing, isn't it? There's another man who's been changing the world. He's traveled all around the world. His name is Nick Vujicic. God is using a man with no arms and no legs to be his hands and his feet all over the world. Nick, if you didn't know it, is a son of a pastor, and he was born with no arms and no legs. And when the announcement came to the home fellowship where his dad pastored, they were shocked. They didn't know how to make sense of such a thing. They were trying to figure out how this could happen to the pastor and his wife. They were devastated. They questioned. Then the parents decided after a struggle in the first several months of trying to make sense of everything, they decided just to give it all to God. And they knew that God had a plan. But Nick decided that he would challenge God. He knew that he was a sinner. This is his own words. But he was not going to ask God into his life until God answered the why question. Why did you take my arms and my legs? Why didn't you give me what everyone else has, said Nick? So at age eight, he told his parents he wanted to go into the bathtub and relax, and he decided to commit suicide at the age of eight. He turned over twice in the tub with his head face down in the water and said he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't take his life. He says life was tough from there, but Nick realized, he said, there's no point in being complete on the outside if you're broken on the inside. He said, I found out God could heal you without changing your circumstance. And so Nick got saved when he read the story of the blind man in John 9. God answered Nick's question as he breathed his word into Nick's life and circumstances. The answer was this, will you trust me? The Bible story was John 9 when the apostles saw a man born blind and they said, Lord, who sinned? 
this man or his parents, that he was born this way. And Jesus said, neither him nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the works of God might be made manifest through him. I want you to see Nick Vujicic in his own words as he finishes the story. This is about a two-minute video. Just take a look up at the screen. Just go ahead and start it there. That's fine. I am nothing. I'm nothing. God, though, lives in me, and I now live in his strength. And whatever Jesus conquered, I conquer. I believe if God doesn't give you a miracle, you are a miracle of God for somebody else's salvation. And I thank God that he didn't answer my prayer when I was begging him for arms and legs at age eight. Because guess what? Because I have no arms and no legs, he's using me all around the world. And we've seen so far, approximately, uh, this is conservative, 200,000 souls come to Jesus Christ for the very first time in the last six, seven years. And what would you rather? Would you rather have arms and legs, Nick, here on earth and no arms? No, whatever his will is. Because I'd rather have no arms and no legs temporarily here on earth to be able to reach someone else for Jesus Christ and then spend eternity with them there. In the last decade, Nick has shared his story in 24 countries to over 3 million people. And whether he's talking to a stadium packed with people or one single person, his heart behind the message is the same. God loves you, that he hasn't forgotten your pain, he hasn't forgotten your family. And maybe while you're watching this interview, you've compared your suffering to my suffering. And that's not where hope is, to know that someone else, in your opinion, is suffering more than you. That's not where hope is. But hope is in the name of God, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope is when you compare your suffering to the infinite, immeasurable love and grace of God. Isaiah 40, verse 31, says, Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, that shall mount up on wings as eagles. I didn't need my circumstance to change. I don't need arms and legs. I need the wings of the Holy Spirit. And I'm flying because I know Jesus is holding me up. Don't give up on God, because God will not give up on you. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? The man, um, conservative estimates say that 200,000 people have come to Jesus Christ because of Nick's testimony. He said he was in high school one day, and there was an Indian janitor who looked at him one day and said, Nick, you're going to be a speaker. He said, what are you talking about? I'm going to be a speaker. You're going to tell your story all over the world, and it's come to pass. Do you know that Nick has set a record in the Guinness Book of World Records he hugged 1,700 people in one hour. 1,700 people. People will line up for miles and just wait to hug this man because he gives people hope. If what was happening to Nick on the outside really defined him, Nick would be nothing. He would just be some, somebody that we would push aside and forget. But what matters in life is not what's going on on the outside, but what's happening on the inside. I was thinking about this week, and I was thinking, if my story was Mike in me, it would be the hope of gory. (laughs) But Christ in me is the hope of glory. 
And it's not, you know, we live in a culture today that assesses everything by the outside, how you look, how you speak, how you dress, where you live, what you drive, what your hairstyle is, what your clothing looks like. But God assesses things very differently. And God did not remove Nick's circumstances, although Nick did desire that very early on. But God has used Nick to change the world. I've seen some videos of hardened criminals in prison breaking down in tears, hugging this man. This is what God can do with your life. It's not just Nick's life, it's your life. And you may, be, you may feel broken this morning. You may wonder what you have to offer to this world. But there's a lot of blessings that we sometimes just simply pass by and we don't even think about them. Those who hope in the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. I understand that in France, uh, when a woman is pregnant, they actually will celebrate that pregnancy. In the United States, we're a little bit conservative in congratulating women because sometimes we want to make sure they're pregnant. And if you've ever made that mistake before, you never want to make it again. Can I get a witness? But in France, they have a saying, I'm not going to try to say it in French, but they congratulate the woman and they say this, these words. They say, this is a common phrase, I congratulate you on your hope. Turn to somebody this morning and say, I congratulate you on your hope. Are you willing to do that? Go ahead and turn to somebody and say it. What hope? Do you, do you wake up every day with a sense of hope as a Christian? You should. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. But sometimes we don't, right? Sometimes we look at everything else. We look at our circumstances. But I congratulate you this morning on your hope. Now, this is the hope. It's laid out in verses 20 through 27 as we continue in this glorious letter to the Colossians. It says, and through him, through Christ, verse 20, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. See the word in verse 20, reconcile. If you connect reconcile with having made peace, that is a great definition of reconciliation. Reconciliation is to be at peace with God. If you have peace with God, you have hope. Peace with God is what gives birth to hope. But if you don't have peace with God, then you're hopeless because you're looking for hope in all the wrong places. You know, many of us could come up and tell our story this morning and we could say, you know what? I looked for hope everywhere besides the one who is hope for years and years. And sadly, for us as Christians, sometimes we still do that. We know we have the hope of all mankind, but we still sometimes look for hope in all the wrong places. But we have peace with God. Reconciliation in verse 20 is a restoration of fellowship between God and sinners, the object of Christ's coming was the work of reconciliation. The blood-stained cross is where he paid the ransom price. 
Now, the Gnostics, who their, their doctrines were forming in the book of Colossians, they're being addressed, kind of a weird uh, form of Jewish mysticism and Greek Gnosticism, as I explained to you. And the, these teachers said that Jesus didn't have a physical body, some of them at least, said he was something like a phantom, that he just appeared to be physical. This is called docetism. He just seemed to be physical. But Jesus Christ died in his fleshly body on the cross. His fleshly body, and I think this is to refute the false teachers who were coming around the Colossian Christians, he died in his fleshly body on the cross. And he did this through the blood that he shed. His blood was real. His blood was shed on the cross at Calvary. Notice at verse 20 it says, to reconcile all things. The phrase all things, you could compare it to verse 16 where it says, for by him all things were created, not all other things, as we looked at with our Jehovah's Witness friends and their translation, but all things were made through him. At least at the time of origin, some interpreters have used this verse to argue for universal salvation. It's been suggested that God will not allow anything to fall outside the scope of his saving love in Christ. Since it says all things, some commentators have said, well, then all things are gonna be reconciled to God. Everything, all angels, all people, everything. That is called universalism, but that is simply not biblical. Jesus said of Judas Iscariot, it would have been better for him had he never been born. The Bible says of Satan and the Antichrist that they will burn in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Not all things, not all people will be reconciled to Christ, but all of those who enter into a relationship of peace. After all, that's why he came to reconcile and to shed his blood. You say, then what does it mean, Pastor Michael, that it says all things here? Well, most uh, conservative scholars hold to a view that this means all things in terms of the universe, that is, that the physical universe will experience a shalom or a peace. Go to Isaiah 11 for a second. Isaiah 11, find the Psalms and the Proverbs, go a little bit to your right. Isaiah 11 that has a few uh, sections like this, and this would include the scope of the physical creation, the universe, and even animals on God's holy mountain. Isaiah 11, verse one says, then a shoot will spring forth from the, will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. Isaiah 11, verse two. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, verse three. He will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And also righteousness with, will be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. By the way, when we see pictures of the lion and the lamb. Technically, it's the wolf and the lamb who are, you know, the wolf is the predator to, to the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day, and I believe referring now to the millennial reign of Christ, that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Amen? Amen. Colossians 1, let's go back there. So there's a vision in Paul here of a universe that is restored, a universe that comes back into harmony. Part of the reason I decided to teach the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights is because we live in a world of chaos, a world that is in constant threat, a world where there's many wars going on and there's threat of war. And Thursday was the National Day of Prayer, and I hope you got a chance to pray with a group of people there. I went to an event that was put on by KKLA. And at that event, there were many church leaders who had come together just for the purpose of prayer because we need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our military. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God honors prayer. And we quoted 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. We need to pray. There is a day coming, though, when there will be a universal harmony, where ancient predators will be at peace with one another, well, they are a place where they will learn war no more. Praise God. There's going to be a time when there is no more war, no more curse. There's going to be a universal peace. And we have the down payment of that right now as God has saved us through Christ. And although, verse 21, Colossians 1, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Now, before you were reconciled, we went through or we were in a period of alienation. The opposite of reconciliation is alienation. If you've ever felt alienated from somebody, you know what a strange and dark feeling that is. You feel like you can't approach them. The picture of alienation is in the fall chapter in Genesis 3 where our first parents take the forbidden fruit, they fall, and what are they doing? They are hiding from God. Those who are involved in alienation, they have not been reconciled to God, hide from God. One of the ways that they hide from God is in their unrighteous deeds. They suppress the truth, Romans 1, in unrighteousness. They turn up the volume in their lives by practicing sin. And we sometimes get the idea uh, as we talk to people and maybe look at the world and hear people's opinions about God and the world that a person who does not know God is just kind of neutral, they, they don't really care one way or the other, but this Bible text here says that people who are alienated from God are actually hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. This is how it uh, works out in the life. Romans 8, 7 says, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Have you ever talked to a person, you can talk about any subject in the world, but you bring up Jesus and they get hostile. And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? 
Well, there is a hostility towards God for, and I'm not saying that this is a sweeping reality. Some people are just, you know, maybe just ignorant. But in Genesis 6, 5, we have a picture of a world in rebellion to God, and it says, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Hebrew, this has the idea that every time a thought came down the pike of his mind, he found a way to twist it into something distorted and evil. And I fear for our generation right now that's getting bombarded with all this social media and all this garbage that is coming at people. And it's, it's bombarding the thought life of people. And so this is what we were formally. In 1 Corinthians 6, 11, it says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is where Paul gives us relief. He says, yet, 22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body, as I emphasize as we look at the previous verse. How did that happen? Through death, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If you have the NIV, it says, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And all God's people said, thank you, Lord. Now, we have an accuser in Revelation 12 that says he accuses us before the throne of God day and night. But no accusation against a saint will stand because you are cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are free from accusation. Now, today, that's not the reality on the planet, right? There's people who accuse us of stuff all the time. But in the heavenly court, whether this means no one will even able, be able to speak in accusation, or if an accusation comes your way, it will not hold court because you are cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are, this is the language from Old Testament sacrifices, you are holy and without blemish before the sight of Almighty God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are free, free from accusation. You are beyond reproach. You say, well, Pastor Michael, I certainly don't feel that way most of the time, nor do I. But Christ is the one who gives me that standing before God. This is what the gospel teaches. If any man is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. The old things have passed. Behold, new things have come. We have been reconciled to God. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How's that for hope? See, we have peace with God, which gives us hope, and we are free from accusation. That's what gives us hope. And do you know there's a lot of people walking around today, they're so burdened by their guilt, they're so overwhelmed by things that they've done wrong, and they have a sense of guilt that they constantly live under condemnation. But the Bible says you, if you're in Christ, are free from accusation and free from condemnation. Because if any man or woman be in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? You're not condemned. You're going to be convicted at times as a Christian. Because you, you may be doing something that the Lord says, that's not what I want you to do, but you're not condemned. 
But here's an if, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. If you continue in the faith. Now, you might be asking, well, Pastor Michael, you just, verse 22 was such good news, but now we have a word, if. If we continue. Does that mean that I have to keep myself saved? No, I don't think that's what it means. We can't add anything to the perfect, complete work of Christ on the cross But what was happening in Colossae was that the false teachers were preaching another gospel, right? They were saying that Christ could not be fully God. They were saying that Christ could not be fully man. They were saying God had all these emanations and and matter was evil and all this false teaching was coming to the Colossians and they were listening to it. And if you embrace a false gospel, a false gospel cannot save you. You have to continue in not your faith. Look at verse 23. It says, in the faith. You have to believe the right thing. The faith is a technical term for Christian doctrine. This is where the whole letter is going, by the way. This is not an incidental verse. Verse 23 is a very key verse because it addresses the false teaching coming at the believers at Colossae. What you believe does matter. And Paul says, look, I am I'm shocked that you're being moved away from the gospel to another gospel, which is really not another Galatians 1. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel, Paul says, uh, other than the one that we have preached, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him be under the curse of God. This is the business of the devil. The devil has been in the counterfeit business ever since he fell. He's been lying to humanity ever since he fell. Oh, maybe you don't need to be that technical about who Christ is or why do we argue about doctrine anyway? Come on. Look, we can argue about peripheral stuff, whether you get dunked when you're baptized, sprinkled or dry cleaned. (laughs) We can argue about that. The mode of baptism, I don't think, is an essential. But the fact of who God is, who is God, and how you get saved is essential. You must have the right gospel. And of course, you must have the right God. The ancient world was filled with false gods. And God said, you shall have no other gods before me. So we must continue in the faith. Look at uh, Colossians 2. Look at verse 8. Paul says, see to it, 2.8 that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. See, this is the responsibility of the believer to see to it that no one captivates you through man-made philosophy and empty deception. C28 is a store that actually started in the mall. Uh, The man who started it was converted to Christ as he was driving down the 91 freeway in a brand new Porsche Turbo Carrera. He owned the company Dog Glue, sold it for a bunch of money, 
pocketed the money, went to a local dealership, bought the Porsche of his dreams, was racing down the 91 freeway and felt an overwhelming sense of emptiness. Paid cash for the car. I would just like to try that once. See if I too felt an overwhelming sense of emptiness. This is what drove him to Christ. He said, look, if money and possessions can't do it, if Christ is the answer, then I'm going to give my life to Christ. Don't be moved away from the hope that is in Christ. That's why when we talk about false teachers and false doctrine, we're not just talking about an area that doesn't really matter much. When we're talking about cults and world religions, we're talking about belief systems that can lead someone away from the true saving gospel. So Paul says, I want you to be firm. I want you to be firmly established, verse 23. If you look at Colossians 2, 6, and 7, this is Paul's wish for the Colossians. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, 2, 6, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Get your roots deep. Because when your roots are deep, when the winds blow, you won't be uprooted. You won't be blown down. You won't be blown around like a tumbleweed. You'll have a firm root system in the truth of the gospel. This is what we need. So Paul says this is the hope. Don't be moved away from hope. If you're moved away from hope, what do you have? Do you know people right now who have moved away from their hope in the gospel? Where do you go to when you leave the hope of Christ? Where else would you find answers? Peter said, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. What are we going to do now? Go back fishing? What are we going to do now? Go back to our previous life? We've met the Messiah. We've seen miracles of miracles. How can I go back now? But... The reality is, as believers, because this world is a hard place to live out your faith, that's one of your great temptations in life, isn't it? It's one of mine to quit, to give up. To, you know, there's a lot of people who they, they just want their ticket into heaven and they're not terribly concerned about how rooted and grounded they get. One writer says, Paul is not expressing doubt as to whether they will continue on. That is not what the Greek construction means here in verse 23. Scholar Peter T. O'Brien paraphrases the idea, at any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I am sure you will. In a very prickly passage in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, that has caused many Christians to lose sleep at night. As Paul goes through that section, he says these words, but beloved, Hebrews 6, 9, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Let me just say this. The warning, though, is real. Verse 23 is there for a reason because there are people who do get sold a bill of goods. There are people, you don't hear about this a lot, folks, but let me say this to you. There are people who enter into cultic movements do you know that the biggest feeder for the cults is the Christian church? People 
who have grown up in Sunday school and the Christian faith have migrated to Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, you name it. And often it is because they are not grounded in the essential truth of the gospel. The back door of the church is sometimes bigger than we'd like to think. And part of the problem is, and I'm just being real, is that Christians often don't want to go too deep with their Bibles. They don't want to go too deep into the theology thing. They'll leave that to the experts. But look, every one of us needs to be rooted and grounded. You'll be grounded even when you're pounded. Look, being grounded doesn't mean you're not going to be pounded. Ask the Apostle Paul when you get to heaven. But he says, but none of these things move me. Acts 20, I'm going to finish the race. We had a men's breakfast yesterday, and Chris Groma shared with us, and he shared about a runner. She was running the 600 meters. It's pretty much a sprint. It's three laps around the track, but you're running you know, at a sprint pace the whole time. And she was running. She was like second or maybe even first, and she got tripped by another runner and fell flat on her face. Now, these, these ladies were going at a very strong clip. I looked at the video. She fell on her face, got back up with about a lap to go, and ended up passing everybody and won the race. Don't quit. Don't quit. Get up. If you've fallen, get up again. None of these things move me. Pastor shared, uh, this was a Bible verse from the New King James uh, Version of Acts 20, 23. Don McClure, he said, he would write notes to people, Acts 20, 23, none of these things move me in the New King James, or it might be verse 24. And uh, he said it was his verse, and he would end you know, correspondence with it. And he said he was going through a tough time in life, and uh, a lot of stuff was going on. And he said he was walking around this building one night just asking questions about God. And he said, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? And God spoke to his heart and said, is this going to move you? And he said, that's unfair, Lord. You had 66 books in the Bible, all kinds of verses, thousands of Bible verses, and you had to use my verse on me. That's my verse. Sometimes it happens, you know, we like to write our little Bible verses. Here, here you go, brother or sister. But do you believe your own Bible verse? Do you have a life verse that you really believe or do you just write it down? It's like the guy who went to the cleaners and he'd been eyeing this store for a while and it said, it said 24-hour cleaners. So he showed up there at six in the morning and the door was locked. So he called the store later, and he goes, what's going on? And he said, I thought you guys were the 24-hour cleaners. And the business owner responded, no, that's just the name of the business. We're not open 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. In the Greek construction of this language, it can mean don't be shaken from your faith. There's going to be things that shake you in this life, no doubt. I mean, look at Nick's story. What if you were Nick's mom and dad and you were pastoring a church? 
Can you imagine what he went through as he went to school? He spent a good portion of his life in public school. Can you imagine what he went through? It's no wonder at age eight he wanted to commit suicide. Now, he's changing lives all over the world. You know, sometimes our greatest struggle in life can become our greatest platform for ministry. Sometimes we think, oh, there's no way God could redeem this situation. There's no hope in this. And God uses that very thing to give hope to others. You know, when we're real with people, it gives people hope. When we're honest about even our own weaknesses, it gives people hope. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now I rejoice, says Paul, verse 24, Colossians 1, in my sufferings, what? What, did, did that read right? I rejoice, what? I, I don't like that verse, let's go to that verse 25. <laughs> Wait a minute, it, it does say that. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, you, all God's people say, what? <laughs> what does this verse mean? Well, Paul wrote Colossians from where? From prison. And though he had never met the Colossian believers, Paul was the Gentile or the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He wasn't a Gentile, but he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he suffered all over the Roman world. Spent time on the open sea, floating around on pieces of wood. He got beat up with rods and lashed with a whip. Spent time in prison, insults, threats. In one place, he was stoned and left for dead. They threw rocks at him, hoped he was dead, and just left him lying there. The great apostle Paul. And he said, well, why did you do that, Paul? He says, because I was suffering for your sake. I went around the Roman world so you could get the hope of the gospel. There's no television back in the day, no cell phones. The only way you got a message to someone is either through written correspondence or an oral spoken message. That was it. So Paul said, I was willing to suffer because now I know what's happening in your life. I was willing to get the gospel to you. Dr. Helen Rosevere a British medical doctor had served more than 20 years in Zaire, Africa. For 12 and a half years, she had a frenetic but generally wonderful time serving as the only doctor to an area containing more than a half million people. Today, about one and a half million. But in 1964, in the revolution, it overwhelmed the country. She and her co-workers were thrown into five and a half months of almost unbelievable brutality and torture. On one occasion, when Dr. Rosevere was on the verge of being executed, a 17-year-old student came to her defense and was savagely beaten as a result. He was kicked about like a football and left for dead. Dr. Rosevere was very sick. For a moment, she thought that God had forsaken her, even though she did not doubt his reality. But God stepped in, overwhelmed her with the sense of his own presence, and said something like this to her heart. 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary, the privilege of being identified with me. These are not your sufferings. These are my sufferings. 
As the force of that hit home, the doctor said she was overcome with a great sense of privilege. Helen Rosevere's sense of identification with Christ, of union with him, was elevated by her suffering, and she rejoiced. Paul likewise rejoiced in the sublime oneness he sensed as Christ participated with him in his sufferings. You know, this is not a subject that we all want to hear about, but the reality is is that people suffer for the gospel. It's been happening for 2,000 years. It's happening in the Middle East right now. I heard a story where uh, a man who was a, he was part of ISIS, went around a corner and he saw three Christians being crucified on crosses. And I'm talking about a story within the last year, by the way. Three Christians being crucified on crosses. And one of the Christians smiled at this man right before he died from crucifixion. And that smile won this man to Christ. And he's now testifying his faith in Christ all over the world. This is what God does. You say, well, is there something in Christ's sufferings that are lacking? I thought Christ's work was complete at the cross. There's some people who say that maybe in this verse there's the idea of the Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory, that people have to suffer and then they finally enter into glory. They have to pay for their own sins, but that's totally against Paul's argument in the whole flow of this text. He just said we're free from accusation. He just said we're reconciled by the blood of the cross, so then what does this mean? Here's what Paul is saying, I believe. I believe that what Paul is saying is that every time he got persecuted, since Christ was now in heaven, people were doing to Paul what they would have liked to have done to Jesus. Every time they took their uh, hatred and venom out on a messenger of the gospel, they were doing to that person what they would like to do to Christ if they could simply get a hold of him. But since Christ lives in us, the hope of glory, that persecutor was feeling like now they were doing something directly to Christ. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Acts chapter 9. You see, Jesus Christ is involved in every area of our life because he lives in us. And of this church, 25, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. The idea is to lay out the word of God fully. You can't quit on your stewardship. You can't. You've been given a stewardship. What's a steward? In the ancient world, a steward was a manager of somebody else's possessions, servants, household, everything. Joseph in Potiphar's house was his steward. And it is required of a steward that he be found, what? Faithful. That's all God wants from you, is faithfulness. He, do, he knows you're not going to be perfect. He just wants you to know that when you fall and you skin your knee, just get up again. Don't quit on your stewardship. Don't quit on things that God has given you responsibility for. Don't quit on your spouse. Don't quit on your ministry. It's always too soon to quit. Paul says, I'm a minister. This comes from W.E. Sangster of Westminster Central Hall. He says, called to, to preach, commissioned by God to teach the word, a herald of the great king, a witness to the eternal gospel. Could any work be more high and holy? 
To this supreme task, God sent his only begotten son. In all the frustration and confusion of the times, is it possible to imagine a work comparable in importance with that of proclaiming the will of God to wayward men, question mark? Oh, but don't get me wrong, it's not an easy work. The ministry has its perils. I heard a pastor say recently that if he listened to everything his critics said, he said when the church was small, nobody paid attention to him. He said when, when the church was growing rapidly, everybody criticized him, and now that the church is extremely large, everybody resents him. <laughs> he says, if I listen to my critics, and this is a man who could get on the internet and spend two weeks just looking at articles that are criticizing him, he said, I would be devastated, but I've learned something in ministry, to have tough skin but a tender heart. You might want to write that down. Tough skin, but a tender heart. Look, it's not easy to be involved in any kind of ministry because it involves people. I know. Some days I have very positive outlooks on folks. Other days, not so much. Some days I have a very positive outlook on myself. Other days, not so much. I disappoint myself regularly. (laughs) I do not meet my expectations most of the time. However, Christ lives in me. And I do not measure my life by all the outward stuff that the world measures stuff by. But I have... A mystery I want to tell you about, and this is the final two verses as we lead into communion. And Paul says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. That's you, brothers and sisters. This mystery was once hidden, now it's revealed. The Greek word for mystery here is musterion. If you just uh, spelled out mystery and added an I-O-N at the end, you'd have the word. For years, scholars believe that Paul was using a play on words from the mystery religions of the pagan world. But more recent scholarship believes that the word mystery is probably more linked to Daniel 2 and the idea that God is the revealer of mysteries and that God, in one sense, cloaked this mystery The Messiah was predicted in the Old Testament in shadows and types, but the reality that he would live within the church was fully revealed through the preaching of the New Testament gospel. And now, you and I have an advantage. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if we're in Christ, he is in us. If we are in Christ, he is in us. He lives and makes his abode in his people. It's a mystery how this all works together. Many scholars says he does this through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he has made his abode in his church. That's how much he cares about you. He doesn't just check in once a week. How you doing? He doesn't send you a veiled text once a month. He lives in you, which should suggest that he cares about you. Amen? Some of us can't even put up with people for an hour. (laughs) He lives in you. Just think about it. It's awesome. 
God is the revealer of mysteries, and this is one of the mysteries he wanted you to know. He wants you to know. Among these mysteries are the mystery of the incarnate God, Colossians 2.2, Israel's unbelief, Romans 11.25, the mystery of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, the unity of Jew and Gentile in Ephesians 3.3-6, and even the mystery of the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15.51, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, we shall be changed. Final verse. To whom God will to make known, that is to the church, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him, John 14 23, Romans 8.10 says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test? And listen to these words, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In John 6, as we get ready to take communion, Jesus gave a very difficult teaching, very controversial in the uh, understanding of this teaching, especially as it relates to the Roman Catholic Church. And Jesus said these words, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have No life in you. He was saying, in essence, you must take me in. But the words that he spoke, if you look at John 6 carefully, John 6, 63 says, the words that I'm speaking to you are spirit and they are life. If I can put it this way, do not take me literally. I am speaking of spiritual things by using physical examples, which is all over the Bible. I'm not saying you must literally eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm using metaphors like I am the door, like I am the good shepherd. I'm not literally uh, hinges and a piece of wood. I'm the way to God. And by using this illustration in John 6, what he was saying is when you take me into yourself, you will become alive and God will breathe life into you. When you take communion... You take elements that represent the life of God coming into you. It's already a reality, just like your baptism signifies what's already happened in your heart. Everybody with me? Baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward reality. The water doesn't save you. Christ saves you. The water demonstrates dying to the old self and coming out in resurrection life. It's a picture And in the same way, even though there's a debate about, you know, what really happens at the communion table, ultimately, the idea of taking the bread and the juice is an idea of being reminded that Christ is in you, and that's why you have life. So as you come to to the table of the Lord as a Christian, you remember, Christ lives in me. I have his life in me. This is what the table's about. But the table is for Christians. And if you're not a Christian, I would just encourage you to become one right now and come to his table. You might say, well, Pastor Michael, what do I have to do to become a Christian? 
You have to ask Jesus into your life. This is a spiritual reality we're talking about here. You must ask the living God to come and make his abode in you. And if you do, he will. All he wants you to do is turn from your sin. Don't think that you can do it on your own, but trust in his finished work as a gift. Say, Lord, I open my heart. I'm ready to receive. And at that moment, if you'll repent of your sin and receive Christ, he will come in and make his home with you.